this week. Young dogs, old gods, obnoxious ladies, and so much more. Sarah Kolb, the light of Denver, a Western Conference champion in competitive Mountain Goats lyrics memorization, and the creator of Superstition, joins me for a talk about her show, the advantages and shortcomings of noir fiction, Jewish sleuths, and everything under the sun. Because when you're talking about Arizona, everything is under the sun. It's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Big ups to our beloved submissions editor, Elena Fernandez-Collins, who filled in for me last week, stepping up in a big way. Thank you, my buddy of me. I had the privilege of talking to Sarah Kolb not long ago. She's one of those people that I'd interacted with at a distance through social media for some time, but was delighted to get the opportunity to know better. She saved Passover for me this year by linking me to Hagadot.com, a fully customizable pick-and-choose Haggadah creator, which is kind of the run sheet for a Seder, the ritualized dinner that Jews throw on Passover. I hosted a Seder for the first time in like 15 years, and it was probably one of the most satisfying holiday experiences of my life. You heard it here first, folks. Sarah Kolb saved Passover 2019. She gave me that gift, and y'all haven't even heard this interview yet. Sarah's a native of Flagstaff, Arizona, like Will and Ellie talked about in last week's outro, and you'll hear more about that, the complicated legacy of writers and explorers like Lovecraft, John Wesley Powell, and Edward Abbey, making space for obnoxious women like Jack, and Sarah argues, like Sarah, and Jews in audio fiction. Hell to the yes! Let's take a listen. Sarah, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Just a note to y'all listeners, uh, there may be some dogs barking in the background, and we're just going to have to deal with it. I, they've calmed down, but I do have two corgis. I, I did mention them now, so now, now they're... <laughs> Either they're going to be completely silent, or they're going to interrupt like a very serious answer. Right. Yeah. That's that's the iron law of of mentioning shit during an interview. Of course. Uh, but but welcome. Hello. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So Sarah, you said in an interview with Aiden Weller that Superstition began as a novel. Uh, can you tell me about the origins of the project and what made you decide to resurrect it as an audio drama? Yeah. So. It's was something that's been rattling around in my brain probably for six or seven years. And, you know, I always kind of thought of myself as like, I'm going to write a novel and that's going to be the thing that I produce and get out there. Um, and it was, it was a NaNoWriMo project once upon a time that I got through a very sketchy first draft of that is pretty wildly different than where the show ended up. But it was a complete draft, which is always like, hey, you completed something that's exciting. Um, but yeah, so it started off... I knew, I had, had kind of known that I wanted to write a story, a, a detective story about a female detective and, and play with giving that character a lot of the traits that we glorify in sort of classic male detectives that are kind of unpleasant or demonized in women. Um, she had a different name that I don't actually recall, the like proto-Jack character. Um, but it was a lot more like tradition playing on traditional noir so it probably was a lot more like the dresden files than gravity falls which is kind of where it ended up um and so i, I like finished a draft a loose draft of this and so some of the characters were similar there was like a police informant character who kind of turned into tom and there was a mysterious love interest on a motorcycle who turned into izzy so some of that stuff kind of remained but 
I could never decide where I wanted to put this, to have this story, you know, like detect- the detective with her slatted blinds and her hat and her cigarette. Um, and such an important part of detective stories, or at least in the sort of detective story genre that I play with a little is place in the location and having that feel like it's a character in the story as long with the characters. And I think that was a sign that the story I was doing wasn't working. Where was it set in Chicago initially? Where was where was the setting? It was at one point and it was in New York and it was in Seattle and I was like bouncing it around between big cities, none of which I lived in. I didn't put it in Phoenix and I could have put it in Denver, I guess, but I don't know how interesting that would have been. But yeah, so that was it was a sign that that was not doing what I wanted it to do. And then for a very brief period of time, probably because I was listening to a lot of Alice Isn't Dead, it was kind of a road trip story <laughs> um, where Jack was chasing clues kind of all across the United States, um, a tiny bit of which made it into what ended up being the original the script. And then, you know, it was kind of this like, oh, well, it seems kind of obvious to place it into the place that I grew up and to have the character be an outsider. And that was kind of a, like no shit moment for me. Um, but then, <laughs> so that was a, like another version once I kind of got Jack to Arizona and did these v- versions of this character. And that was an unfinished script that I never got all the way through because I kind of got stuck. This was maybe two years ago. Um, and in that time period, I was listening to, or I had really started listening to a bunch of audio drama. And in to order to unstick my own writing, I thought, well, what if I take the first couple chapters of this and put it in a completely different format because as a like prose writer, I'm very kind of inside of people's heads and very descriptive and writing a script where people are talking and that has to move the plot is very different than what I'm used to and what I was kind of relying on. Um, I, I feel like something that Noir does really well to bridge that gap, though, is that you still get to retain a lot of the protagonist's interiority the way that you've done with Jack. Yeah, which... As a, like, I don't, I would have had a hard time moving the plot anywhere if I had not written stuff that way. And sometimes I feel like it's a little bit of a crutch. Uh, Cause it's like, well, I don't know how to intro this. Jack's just going to talk to herself and tell her where we're at. Tell us where we're at rather. Um, but yeah, so I like taking something that was in the similar story and it evolved as stories do, but putting it into a completely different format, which really had to pare down like, okay, what is the core of these characters' relationships and who are they and how do they talk to each other? Um, really kind of unstuck things. And I liked it so much that I then went, well, lots of other people do this. Can I do this? And I sent, you know, three episodes around for a bunch of people to read. And that was the beginning of where we're at now. Yeah. So to go back to noir fiction, what what things did you want to specifically retain for superstition and what did you end up rejecting? I, you know, I played a lot with and I think because I grew up on on a, a diet of like murder mysteries and horror stories, um, both of which I think are probably obvious in superstition is that's, you know, what I like to write that in romance, which is also there. Um, <laughs> but... There was some aspects of like revolving a story around a character and her past and how her internal conflict then gets external and relates to the place and to other people. That is just like fascinating storytelling device that you really see. I mean, I was kind of musing before this and thinking about, can you name like a famous detective character that doesn't have kind of a tragic backstory? (laughs) And it's like Ms. Marple is the one. Nero Wolf? Kind of. Uh, he likes snacks. 
Yeah. But he's he's like the love child of Adler and Holmes, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. Um, I mean, Sherlock Holmes kind of. He doesn't have like a dead spouse. Maybe he's the one example where that's not true. But he was like also like cripplingly lonely, which you could also say for, for Jack for other reasons. That's, tra- but... that's tragic. <laughs> um, yeah, that is tragic. And well, he wanted we talk about that all day. He did. And he found so much more. And it's not just that, I mean, characters in fiction have tragic backstories. That's sort of what gives them oomph. Or if they don't, then you give them tragic backstories as you write their stories. But but having a character with a past that then connects to other stuff in the environment that she's moving through is has always been fascinating. And, and place as a character is something that I've always really loved reading and, and consuming stories about and really love writing. And that is, in terms of, like, what makes noir fiction tonally, I think, different from a lot of other detective fiction, is that idea that, like, the city or wherever we are is out to get the main character and the characters have a relationship with the place that they're oftentimes struggling against in the ways that they have relationships with each other, which is really fun to think about and also kind of horrific and fascinating to write and pops up in stuff that's even not, like, straight noir. I'm, like... I'm replaying Dishonored right now, and it has that, like, vibe as a video game, um, where clearly that's not, it's not about a detective, but it has that same kind of idea. So that was something that, like, that as a kernel for the story was something I really wanted to play with. But I wanted to do away with, I mean, like, really classic noir fiction is obviously often very sexist and very racist, and desiring to flip the script a bit and have the main character be a woman who you know, is irascible and kind of irresponsible and maybe a little morally gray and traits that, you know, we love in Raymond Chandler, but you give them to women and all of a sudden they're not appealing. I think that was, I really wanted to play with that. So you asked this, you asked for this explicitly on Twitter the other day. (laughs) Uh, So I want to ask it directly. So a listener pointed out in their iTunes review of the show that Jack St. James was this perfect level of obnoxious and that it was so great to see that trait present in a woman protagonist. So Sarah, tell me about, as you put it, writing annoying ladies. Like, why did you approach making Jack obnoxious on purpose? What's important to you about that? Well, I think I'm kind of obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to be seen in the fiction I consume. (laughs) Um, That kind of sounds like an insult, but I kind of mean it as a compliment in that, like, like, moving through the world, you know, women get a lot of flack for being, they're the dogs, for being too loud or too opinionated or any of these things. And characters that get written that way often are hated on. But those, that's like, those are the women that I like the most. That's me. That's, you know, people that I know. And also, yeah, like literally a lot of when people don't like me, that's why. Is because I've got a lot to say and I'm loud and annoying, which, you know, that's where it is and that's fine. (laughs) But yeah, so with Jack, you know, I did, I think she always in my brain, she was sort of born Athena-like in her irritatingness out of my head. And is like, all right, here I am and I've got a lot to say and I've got a lot of problems and we're just going (laughs) to roll with that and we're not going to try to bring her down in any way. But... I think I worried a lot about getting the balance right and having her be likable. And I think that's what I worried about. And I think a lot of people who write have female leads in whatever they're working on worry about, is she still likable? Are people going to be able to relate to her, even though we're trying to give her traits that are 
maybe a little more realistic in terms of actual people, but not necessarily that appealing. Um, and so in this first round, like, like I said, I, I gave kind of the first drafts of the first three episodes of the show to some friends to read, just to be like, would you listen to this if it was turned into something? Where do you think it's going? What is it missing? And the feedback that I got that I knew I had something that I wanted to like move ahead with was someone was like, I don't know if I like your Jack very much. And I find her really frustrating. I think that was the word was frustrating. Um, and I was like, yes. Was the feedback from a man? No, it was from a, a female friend of mine, um, which if it had been a man, it would have been like, nah, I, don't, I don't care what you think. This is not about you. But that getting that feedback was like, okay, I'm hitting the right spot that like, yeah, you like get to like her. And I think if you recognize yourself or your appeal, like that type of character is appealing, you're going to be into it. And it's fun and she's really fun to write. And I'm sure she's a hoot to perform. <laughs> um, but she's also incredibly like she makes really selfish, weird decisions. And she does things that are very different from the things that she thinks inside of her head. And she's very contradictory and she's very blithe. And she kind of makes fun of people's pain and she's loud and she's obnoxious and she doesn't act like she cares about her family. And she's great. I mean, she's so fun to write as a character. It's just... A hoot. And the, and the other thing I will say is that I think all of the women in the show are a little annoying in different ways, and that was intentional. <laughs> well, they get shit done. Yeah, that's, I mean, they do. Like, Absolutely. Isn't that, isn't that sort of Jenny's whole thing? Yeah. So she's annoying because she's frigid, and Kate's annoying because she's, like, kind of dumb and bubbly, and Izzy annoy is annoying because she's closed off, which I'm like, all right. <laughs> Bring it on. More... Abrasive women in fiction, 2019. <laughs> so there's there's elements of cosmic horror in the mystery, and to me that summons up inevitable comparisons for Lovecraft, and not not just like because of cosmic horror, right? There's ancient secrets, cities on the edge of imagining, otherworldly forces that drive men mad, but also specifically the presence of white colonizers driving into land that isn't theirs, right? Cardenas in the Grand Canyon, hunting for the seven cities of gold in 1540, then Samuel St. James and Colton Bishop hunting for the same in 1870. Lovecraft, right, would have applauded the colonizing impulse because he was super racist. <laughs> oh, the worst. But I think you've located something very sinister there. Um, tell me about it, please. Yeah, so... This is a little bit of a, not directly answering your question, but one of the things that was really fun about kind of the, the three, so Jack and Izzy and Tom, those characters is they're all a little bit genre aware as people. And so they're, you know, kind of acknowledging the stuff that's happening to them. And there's this really funny moment in the last episode where Jack is going... Cthulhu Fatan, Cthulhu Fatan, and Kira didn't know how to pronounce it. And we turned it into a bit. And Izzy's like, Stop. Don't even just like bring the energy into this world where stuff happens in this town when you kind of like believe in them or realize them. And we don't even want to go down that line because uh, of who we are demographically sitting at this table. <laughs> um, so that was really fun in terms of like, you have to be aware, I guess, that you're working with some Lovecraft stuff, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. Right. And yeah, so in terms of thinking about the rest of your question, and I think this even in gets to a little bit of the Simon stuff, because I also, and this is something that I don't think, there were like earlier versions of the script, which was like four times as long, which is just not gonna fly where this is a little bit clearer, but Simon's whole thing was supposed to sort of be poking fun at white people who get attached to like 
fake Native American magic mumbo jumbo where he's like, oh, there are like bones under the ground and it's a Native American burial ground and I have to go do something terrible because an ancient spirit's telling me to, which is indicative of like people being in a part of the world that they didn't originate and maybe aren't necessarily supposed to be. Um, so I, th yeah, I think with Sam and with Oliver, I mean, they kind of find what they're looking for in a matter of speaking. Oh, did I call him Colton Bishop? I'm sorry, Oliver Colton Bishop. Yeah, he is, he's multiple names, many a name, Mr. Oliver. But like it ends, depending on how you interpret it fairly tragically, which was intentional in that like, you can't write a story about white man in a boat going into territory. And, you know, I, I tried to be, you know, in, in the limits of the time we're working with as aware as I could be with having the character sort of say, well, just because we don't have a map doesn't mean other people don't in this space, because there were definitely people living in, in that part of Arizona at that time who were not white. Um, One thing they didn't have a map for was each other's hearts though. That's true. I mean, if they had, they had that instead of something else, it probably yeah. would have been better. Um, Continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So the Sam and Oliver story, which I wanted to write that particular little version of like expanding some backstory of the town itself in the place, um, was strongly influenced by my childhood fascination with John Wesley Powell, who was the first white man to raft all the way through the Grand Canyon, who was also in a lot of ways the worst. Um, he was kind of like a eugenicist and, and stuff in some other ways, in ways that people in that time period were. So yeah, I think that was another thing where like, you have to be a little bit self-aware, like you can still explore that stuff that's interesting, but also carefully. And again, the fact that it doesn't end in success is a sign that maybe that's not what they were supposed to be doing in that place, I guess. Yeah, look him up. He's wild. He lost an arm in the Civil War and sailed in a bunch of boats and did a bunch of stuff. Is that is that part of why Sam St. James has one leg? Oh, yes. Yeah, is missing a leg and is a Civil War veteran. Yeah. He has some some of his good traits and not his bad ones, we would hope, because I wrote him. Nice. And he can be what I want him to be. I love Graham Rawat's 19th century voice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I saw that he had been, I think he plays a couple of characters in the new Red Dead Redemption game. Yeah, which is awesome. I, I feel like a couple months ago, I saw him post like little clips on on Twitter and my memory of them, I didn't, I didn't look them up to compare but that they were very similar to his sam voice yeah he's got that vibe where you know we really wanted i wanted that little story that little foray into a different time and place to feel really different and his voice just did that i mean i wouldn't have had really had to do any sound design his voice just kind of took us there in a way that was so fantastic it was so great so Sarah, you and I are both Jews. We are. And so is Jack St. James. She is. And, and she's one of the first Jewish sleuths I've encountered in audio fiction. Where you are know, they? Like I, uh, I, I read those Harry Camelman books, right? Friday, the rabbi slept late. Saturday, oh, the, yeah, Saturday yeah. the rabbi went hungry. And like we were saying you know, earlier, the protagonist of Laurie King's Mary Russell Sherlock continuation stories is, is also Jewish. Jack is the first one I can recall in audio fiction. And she brings what I feel to be a very Jewish spirit to the science of inquiry. There was one bit, hold mm -hmm. on, I pulled it up. Um, this isn't, this isn't text that's, 
this is only visible as a uh, a stage direction to Kira, so you can see it if you read the transcript. But it's in episode ten, part two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where she gives so. Duncan asks her, you know, Jack, have you considered maybe the questions don't exist, that sometimes there is no closure and no ending and no reason for why the bad things in our lives happen. And the stage direction for Jack's reply is gritted teeth. This is the crux of what she's doing here, why this story is going to continue at all. And she says, yes, a thousand times every day, sometimes every minute. And with all due respect, the minute I do accept that is the minute I roll over and die. And I was like, holy shit. Yep. Can... Can you tell me about your experience with Judaism and the desire to question? That's a question. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and there are the dogs. <laughs> See, I told you I was going to ask the big heavy question and then in come yeah. the floofs. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult thing to sort of sum up in. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why like, certain types of stories and certain types of characters have always appealed to me because it is kind of baked into not only like the practice of what you go through, but just the way of thinking about the world and your place in it and how we fit in and what things mean and whether things can mean different things and looking at them from different angles. And so, I mean, like wanting to write a character who is literal, like, you know, like the story is about someone who refuses to accept that she hasn't found closure in something and wants to find some kind of resolution to something horrible happening to her, which like, there you go. Um, right. In terms of Jewish values is, is one of them. But yeah, so I think it, I mean, it's less of a matter of, of like what my relationship to it is and more like, well, this was always going to be sort of the, the dynamics and fiction that mean something because that's the way that I have the tendency to think about how I fit into things and whether I should accept how I fit into things and what that means to accept if I should fit into things and so on and so on and so on. So Jack is an abrasive queer Jew because you wanted to see more abrasive queer Jews in fiction that you were consuming. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that the point of Jewish investigators as a character type where I'm like, where are they? Come on. Let's, because <laughs> it seems like a natural fit to me, but I really wanted This idea of taking what is a fairly typical sort of detective backstory, which is something terrible happened to you, some people went missing that you cared about when you were little, and you're still looking for answers to that. Like, that's true of a lot of detective characters of all sorts, but like, looking at that through the lens of knowing this character is Jewish... Um, and knowing, like, I, we haven't gone, well, Jack's care- family immigrated from here to here, and she's related to Holocaust survivors and that kind of thing, but, like, that's true, and I, I think, you know, not that I would have changed the specifics of her backstory if she had been a different character, but I think it makes that more complex and maybe makes you, once you kind of understand that, and if you have some similar stuff in your history, it makes why she acts the way she does maybe more sympathetic. Because she's dealing with her personal trauma and then also her intergenerational trauma. Hooray! <laughs> At the same time. Sure. <laughs> Three cheers for that. Yeah. Which was really important to me and also just really, like, interesting to think, all right, here's something that we see a lot, but how does it feel different with a really specific character in that role? I have other questions, but I also wanted to ask a side question that occurred to me earlier, which was, do you think... 
that the Monkey Wrench Gang would work as an audio drama, or is that a little bit too hot? Oh. Is it a little bit too, like, is everyone too unlikable? Nate, I, so, I love that book, and I also hate it. Yeah, it's so grimy, right? Yes, and the characters, I mean, they're awful. They're unbearable people, and all of them, which is the point. And Ed Abbey was kind of an unbearable person, and I think, <laughs> you know, was someone who was, like, really happy to be kind of unbearable and didn't apologize for the fact that he was the worst in a lot of ways. Um, so we should say the um, the Monkey Wrench Gang is about a group of environmentalist saboteurs that kind of tear across Arizona and Utah yes. in the 70s, blowing up bridges. Yeah, so it's about a group of eco-terrorists who try to blow up Glen Canyon Dam, which is the dam that spans the Colorado River that's like fundamentally impacted the ecosystem of that part of the country and one of them is like an ex-Mormon one one of them's a woman who's Jewish ironically and one of them is this crazy Vietnam War veteran named Hey Duke who is just like he's a fascinating character but he's terrible terrible character and they're all crass and they have terrible things to say about Navajos and black people and poor people and women and it's also like one of the greatest environmental reads that have ever been written about the American West in terms of one of those stories where you read it and you're like all right I have to like stomach this like we are not exaggerating when we say they suck so bad the worst <laughs> and yeah and it was a book that I read and I read a lot of Ed Abbey when I was like in high school and I reread it recently last year. And when, you know, like when I was 17, I was like, oh, yeah, my favorite book's The Monkey Wrench Gang. Um, and now I'm like, no, that's not true anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of like my thinking about my relationship to wildness and wilderness and how the West feels and what's the West's spirit and personality. And it's kind of like, screw you, tenacity and its strangeness. Like, that's so pivotal, but also... I don't know. I don't know. It would be an interesting audio drama. I think you'd have to go into it with a caveat of like, you're going to hate these people and we're, or you'd have to just like really pick and choose what parts of dialogue you pull and what makes it into it and what doesn't. Because the sabotage and the political commentary and the blowing up the damn stuff would be great. But the like, like everything that comes out of Hey Duke's mouth. But then the character wouldn't be the character. So I don't know. So, I have a series of Flagstaff questions for you from our beloved producer, Will, who also used to be a Flagstaff resident and misses it savagely. Aww. So Will asks, why does NAU, like, how does NAU have more cemeteries around it than any other college campus? That's, it has something to do with, like, zoning laws in terms of why they're located. So they're, like, on three sides, I think. There's a cemetery on all sides of this. This is where I went to college. Uh, as for why, I don't remember the history, but it's weird. And I can tell you that I have gotten drunk in all three of those cemeteries. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do in Flagstaff, Arizona. That's amazing. What was what was the isolation of being in a town two and a half hours away from anything else like? It's so it's a city. It's a small city, but it is kind of in the middle of nothing. And the only thing around it, you, so you drive two hours south, you get to Phoenix, you drive two hours north, you get to the Grand Canyon. Um, and there are other small towns that are like more the inspiration for superstition. So like Snowflake and Strawberry and Payson, that's like what superstition the town itself feels like. Um, and Flagstaff is fairly robust. And those are on the other side of the ridge. Snowflake's on the other side of the Mogollon Ridge. 
Um, Snowflake is like east. So the Mogollon Rim is a big cliff, basically, that runs kind of through the northern half of the state. And Snowflake is east somewhere, a flagstaff, which is kind of like smack between Phoenix and the Grand Canyon in the center of the state. Um, and it's at 7,000 feet and it gets a lot of snow. And so Superstition, the fictional town, which doesn't exist, is just south and east of Flagstaff, which is a real place that you can go visit. I would like to very much. It's very... So the thing about Flagstaff, and to answer your question, is that Flagstaff is kind of like if someone carved a chunk out of Durango, Colorado, and stuck it in the middle of a red state. So politically, it's very different. Environmentally, it's very different. Um, it's like up in the mountains. It's beautiful. It has a funky little downtown. It's like one of two democratic voting counties in the state of Arizona is Coconino County. It's on the edge of, of the Navajo Nation. So it has some diversity, even though that's kind of like contentious in the way that <laughs> how uh, Navajo people in Flagstaff are treated. But it's, it's a place where you like make your own fun. And if there's something going on, you go out and you do it because there's not a ton of other stuff going on. So, but I, you know, I grew up as a hiking and camping and that kind of thing. So that's a lot of what I did as a kid. Will wants to know your take on the strange beauty of being in a dark sky city. Oh my God. It's, so I live in Denver now, which is a great place to live, but you go outside at night and... Uh, there's, you know, there's a haze in the way that there are hazes in cities. And it's also the biggest city that I've ever lived in, um, which is not that big compared to Chicago or, you know, other cities in the U.S. But so in Flagstaff, which is a certified dark sky city, so all of the street lamps turn off past a certain time at night um, because there's an observatory called Lowell Observatory, which is actually where Pluto was discovered, which is like one of Flagstaff's claim to fame. And when Pluto was no longer a planet, people there took it very personally. Um, and you're like, but that's, it's our planet. It was found here. Um, but it's like camping out north of town when it's just really dark and there's nothing else going on and there are no streetlights. Or even if you're just like, you know, like out at 2 a.m. and you're drunk and you're looking up at the sky, which, you know, I went to college there. So it's <laughs> some of what I spent my time doing. But like that feeling is just I'm sure you find it in other places in the country but I don't know where they are <laughs> if the, if it's like that anywhere else let me know and I'll come visit because it's not like that where I live now do you know any good Flagstaff ghost stories Will wants to know oh my god uh <laughs> I do because there are a bunch um I have to think about specifics yeah so the Monte Vista Hotel which is like there's like a cross section that's smack dab in the middle of downtown Flagstaff. Um, and there's like a square, there's like this hotel, there's like a weird tea shop. But so this hotel was built, it was like pre-prohibition, I think. It's been there for a long time. And it has like 20 something different ghosts that live in it. And some of them are hotel staff. And I think there are some bank robbers who live there. Amazing. And one of the rooms definitely has, you know, like a rocking chair situation. There's definitely a baby in the basement of the hotel that cries. It was like the ghost of a baby that was left behind. Oh, no. I looked this up. So it says, The disturbing sounds of an infant crying in the basement have been heard again and again. Reported primary by maintenance and laundry personnel. This is possibly the most disturbing encounter that has been reported. I wonder why. It doesn't say why. I think there's a couple who dance through the ballrooms late at night. So that's a very... It's like the most haunted hotel in the U.S. or something. 
Um, there are several haunted buildings on the U- on NAU's campus, one of which is a dormitory, which I feel like every campus has a dormitory where some woman killed herself. Like, that's just fairly standard college campus story, but that's what this one is. It's Morton. It's on North Campus. Um, and then there are all the stories about the underground tunnels that you can supposedly get into. Yeah, I was going to ask you about them underground tunnels. So <laughs> yeah. they run through campus and downtown. Yeah. Uh, tell me, Ms. Kolb. Did you ever stumble by accident or not accident into such a tunnel as an undergraduate at Northern Arizona University? You cannot get into them. They are blocked off. But that's not to say I haven't tried. Okay. (laughs) There were lots of urban legends about spots where you could go, you know, like in maintenance areas or like locations where supposedly you could get into them and they're all blocked off as far as I know. So unfortunately not. But yeah, I mean, it was... Like, the stuff that Izzy's spouting off in the fifth episode or whenever that is about how people don't quite know if they were used for opium smuggling or prostitution. Or the story that was really popular was that this the building that's, like, the admin building on NAU's campus used to be an insane asylum and they would, like, bring patients through the tunnels in the middle of the night because those are the types of urban legend stories people tell. Um, I don't know which one is true. Probably none of them. It was probably just a construction feature, but they're all over the place. Will mentioned massive ravens and the prominence that they have in town yeah and the pride that people have in them what what are y'all just like messing with me about this extremely haunted town no that's so true as well uh and they're just everywhere and college students feed them and stuff Wild. and they're bald eagles too this is less of a question and more of a more of a will poem. It says, ask her about what pulls people to Flagstaff, why everyone feels right in it, and why everyone leaves, and what that means not just to the people, but to the identity of Flagstaff. Ask about what ghosts really are in such a town. Flag is haunted by what ifs as it is by legit fucking ghosts, says Will. She's <laughs> the greatest human being. She, oh my god. That's so funny. Um, It's picturesque. I mean, that part of the country is picturesque and it's beautiful. And it, I think if you're someone who fits in there, you really, like my parents have been there for, they still live there and they've been there for uh, 27 years because I moved there when I was two. And, but it's also a little insular and it's kind of secluded. It's very hard to get a job. It's very expensive to live there. So in terms of like the literal logistical reasons, a lot of people leave because they're just like, I can't take this, take this anymore. Um, or they never leave <laughs> and they all end up in Dhoni Park owning donkeys and living in vans and having solar powered plants and stuff. Um, and a lot of people, I, I, a bunch of people that I went to college with are in Colorado now. A bunch of people end up in Phoenix, which is the asshole of the country. I hate Phoenix and I'm a little biased because I got to grow in the pretty part of Arizona, but it's terrible. Yeah, my wife grew up in Scottsdale. She grew up in, oh, um, yeah. in carefree Arizona. Um, which is have you ever have you ever been to Cave Creek? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like a little arts colony. It, it, that's the part. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. I don't know. I like I like Phoenix. I like Phoenix more than I like Scottsdale, which feels like the world's largest Porsche dealership. That's fair. Yes, Scottsdale is just where old white people go to retire and judge the people in the Trader Joe's. Sorry, Scottsdale listeners. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, but if you're in Scottsdale, you're gonna be like, she's right. She's right. <laughs> uh, because I am. <laughs> Except for the sugar bowl. Y'all can stay. <laughs> That's right. Um, in spring training. So for me, I'm going to get a little political. 
I was born in Pennsylvania, actually, but I grew up in Arizona and had a pretty picturesque childhood, you know, where you say like, what's it like to grow up in a kind of isolated place? And I'm like, it was great because I knew everyone and everything was great. And you could just leave your door unlocked and I could call my mom's friends in the middle of the night and be like, hey, I'm too drunk to drive home. Will you come get me? And they would and they wouldn't tell her. And like that sort of <laughs> community and just like safety and stuff was a, a big part of of what my childhood was like. Um, I did go to a weird prep school where being bisexual wasn't always great, but you know, that's <laughs> kind of inevitable, I think, for living in, in a red state in being 15, it could have been a lot worse. But and so I, and then I also went to college there and I studied journalism. And I was really interested in writing about the environment and particularly um, relations between the environment and race. As this, I had this like lofty idea of that being the thing that I was going to like do in my head. So the mountain in Flagstaff is, or the mountain range is the San Francisco peaks. And they're sacred to, it's like 20 different tribes that are indigenous to that part of the world that have obviously been forced into reservations and things. The Navajo being the largest tribe in the area. And maybe in the 70s, the city of Flagstaff or like Parks and Rec petitioned the city to build a ski resort on this mountain. A ski resort's called Snowball. Um, and the tribes really kind of put up a fight and didn't want this to happen. And it happened anyway. And that's, it's been there as long as I've lived there. And when I was about 14 or 15, they started this push to make snow. So it's ski resorts in Colorado, they fabricate snow so you can ski all year, even when there isn't a ton of water. Um, and this wasn't happening in Flagstaff and precipitation in Arizona is kind of all over the place. So the solution to being we're in a drought was to use water that was reclaimed from the city waste facility. So gray water snow. Yeah. And clean it. I think they would like run it through some processes and pipe it up onto the mountain and run it through a snow machine to make snow out of it, <laughs> which is, is gross to think about. But also in a logistical sense, I mean, it's piping wastewater into a spot that is sacred to a huge population of people that live in this this part of the you know in the city and who are not very represented where most people who live in Flagstaff look like me I'm white so this started when I was maybe 13 or 14 and it kind of like died off and the tribes formed this coalition what's called the Save the Peaks Coalition and they sued to get it to stop and it was this crazy ongoing legal battle um, and so by the time to like catch up with my backstory in this, I'm like 20 or 21, I'm doing journalism and they start finally get to the point where they start construction on this pipeline to take this water up to the ski resort, which I mean, it had gone to like the Supreme Court in Arizona and there had been environmental impact testing and all of this stuff um, to try to get this to stop and to determine what the environmental impacts were and to talk about religious freedom and none of it work and they got the go ahead and they built the pipeline and it's up there. So and, and activists and people were like chaining themselves to trees and tractors to try and get it to stop. And it really didn't. And because I was doing a lot of this reporting and I met a lot of people who were doing this work and doing like real environmental race work in this part of the world. And it was this moment where um, this is probably not the answer that Will wanted at all, but this is where my head went. Um, that's, that's the answer we're getting. Please. <laughs> that... Um, you know, someone that was like, oh, this is the best place to live and it's so liberal and it's wonderful and it's great. And there were, you know, other people who had this completely different experience were like, no, it's it's really terrible and we don't feel respected and 
water runs uphill towards money in the city, and that's just the only thing that matters. And they were like, this is our sacred space, but the Parks and Rec is like, but it'll bring tourists here all year round. And that was what mattered. And, you know, I think that that, in terms of that dynamic being something that is built into that place. And that was one of, I think, you know, not to go like, white person has experience with racism and has her eyes open. But that was like that moment where it was really like, oh, shit, this sucks. And I can't live here anymore because everything about it is different. Um, And I don't entirely feel that way now. And I've come back around to it. But there was like a lot of anger at just like that history and that location when I was learning about this and kind of going through this. Of course, now I live in Denver and that's not any better. (laughs) Um, Nowhere on this part of the country is any better. But it's also very informative for writing about a town that has like secrets baked into its existence in the podcast. So yeah, go figure. The more you know, these things don't leave. Uh, That was an answer. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. That was a great answer. Thank you very much. Uh, It was certainly an answer to something. There's a a Purim story that you had Kira read in character as Jack as a Patreon (laughs) bonus. Yes. Uh, a, a salty retelling I'm of the book. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, don't be. So, so my colleague Heather does puts together dossiers, right, uh-huh. for for these interviews. And normally, she doesn't. You know, she'll she'll hunt up interviews that other people have done. And she's like, normally I don't listen to audio. I just collate and gather it so you can listen to it later. But this was short enough, mm-hmm. and I couldn't pull yeah. myself away. David, you need to hear this immediately. Um, so you got two fans of that so at the glad. very least. What that's, is that's all I wanted? It's two fans. <laughs> I was what? like driving in my car on the way to work, and I was like, "This would be brilliant." And I was like, "What if Kira's busy?" And she was like, "I'm not. It's fine." It was <laughs> so delightful. Right I'm so glad. What is what is your favorite Jewish holiday? I mean, Pur- Purim is up there just it's because there? it's yeah. Um, it's weird. It's a weird one. And it's kind of a minor one. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, some of them are like too easy of an answer, but it's maybe like, there was a reason why that was the, I thought about doing that for Hanukkah, but the Hanukkah story is the Hanukkah story. And then it's like, well, I'm like giving a voice to that being the winter thing that everyone cares about when it's actually not really a thing. And maybe I'll do that another time because I think I could make it really funny. But um, I mean, the Hanukkah story and the Purim story both kind of end similarly, don't they? Yeah, a little bit. With a slaughter. Yeah, that's true. And there's some like complicated current where you look at it through a current lens and you're like, God, like this is not how I remember learning about it when I was really little, but also yikes. Um, which I think is, you know, in, in terms of like what I've been really enjoying about Jewish scholarship recently is people really thinking through the lens of like, all right, let's think about this through a feminist angle and feminist scholarship and how does that change things in our relationship with them and what can we still take away from it versus it being just like, this is the party holiday. Hooray. <laughs> Yay. This was so lovely. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on RDR. This was a delight. Yeah. Thanks for listening to me ramble. And for listening to the show. It is my privilege. Give money to Sarah. Patreon.com slash Superstition Podcast. You can follow the production on Twitter at Pod Superstition. And Sarah herself at Missandry Witch. Come on with a name like that. You paradoxically cannot keep me away. It's so good.
And did you know that we also have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival? We do! Just a dollar a month gets you access to the early release stream of the podcast entirely ad-free. And three dollars a month gets you access to extended cut interviews with guests and fabulous content like this. Hit him with that content, Will. Dungeons and dragons and dragons in dungeons. What's the dragon doing in a dungeon if it's got wings? Think about that. How they get it? Does it, they bring it in as a baby? They bring in the baby egg dragon, and it comes out, and it's like, I'm a tiny dragon, and then, and then it's too big to get out of the dragon out of the dungeon once it gets like big and fat on adventurers. Just, you know, these are these are the thoughts. Try the veal. That was from the end of episode 491, but we collect that stuff and repackage it. And also, Will assures me that she has been collecting all of my bloopers in a blackmail file. Is that true, Will? <laughs> yes. Hooray! Great! You can follow us on Twitter, where we're at Radio Drama, and visit our website at radiodramarevival.com. Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by our fabulous patrons and also by Jiaozi. Delicious Chinese dumplings, which I make in enormous quantities, freeze, and then either pan fry and steam or throw directly into soups. You can too. Ask me how. I'm at Icarus Floats on Twitter. And now, your moment of will. Hey, listener. Last week, I asked you, what is it illegal to chop down in Arizona? You probably guessed cactus. And you are definitely right, but specifically a saguaro cactus. That's that kind of iconic, like, big tall boy, he got arms, you know, he pointy. So that's a saguaro cactus. And most people don't realize it does not grow natively in many places in the States at all. In fact, Arizona is one of the only places that and a specific mountain range in California. We even have a national park called Saguaro National Park, where there are plenty of protected saguaro cacti. We take our cacti very seriously here in the desert. And hey, listener, you're way more patient than people give you credit for. And now it's time for the credits. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Light falls through Venetian blinds on Will Williams, our line producer, as she pours over photographs of a missing woman. Where is she? Where? Waiting for a contact at the edge of the pier, our interview's producer Eli McElvey nervously steadies himself by pulling out a cigarette. Emerging from the shadows, our associate producer, Sean Howard, lights the cigarette for Eli and says, Don't you know smoking kills? Driving at breakneck speed through the canyons outside Los Angeles, our researcher, Heather Cohen, has nearly caught up with Oxnard Ollie, the singing snitch. In the back room of the thoroughly reputable establishment she runs, Elena Fernandez Collins, our submissions editor, stirs a bathtub full of hooch. Bursting into the DA's office with reporters at his heels is our social media manager, James Oliva. In a dark room, in a dark club, wearing a dark suit and sipping dark liquor as he thinks dark thoughts, we find our executive producer, Fred Greenhouge, plotting his next maneuver. I'm your host, a gumshoe, a palooka, a cartoon man in a live-action world, David Reinstrom. 
And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.